So let's pick it up there. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep them and do them. Of course, we have New Testament instruction, not the hearers only, but the doers of the word shall be justified. Well, so much of the Old New Testament is really direct quotations from the Old. That's where they got that expression that we've read many times in the New Testament. The eternal our God made a covenant with us in Sinai, the Horeb. The eternal made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. So he says, this is an ancient history. This is something that many of you have experienced, you know, you've seen it. The eternal talked with you face to face in the mountain out of the midst of the fire. I stood between the eternal and you at that time to show you the word of the eternal, for you were afraid by reason of the fire, and went not up into the mountain, saying, I am the eternal your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So they were afraid to go there, and Moses had to, uh, in that sense, mediate with God. But here is what was delivered to them, as, of course, it's explained right afterward, right after it happened there in Exodus 20. But if you're going to review uh, their experiences, if you can't pass up the Ten Commandments, you've got to review that too, for sure. So he does that. He shall have no other God before me. Uh, so no idolatry, one and one only God. You shall not make you any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth. So it uh, doesn't mean we can't have pictures. It doesn't mean we can't have uh, carved things that are not religious in nature. But anything that is of a religious nature or we attach religious importance to is what he's talking about here because he's talking about his relationship with us and ours with him uh, is the context. So some people have said, well, we shouldn't even take pictures. And I think that's uh, taking out of context and taking this beyond what God intended. This is in religious terminology. You shall not bow down yourself to them, uh, which I think illustrates that. Now serve them, for I, I the eternal your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So if we disobey God, it isn't just us. It doesn't stop right there. It goes down for three and four generations because the penalties uh, of sin can last a long time. And when people have their emotions, their lives, their minds all muddled up by sin and transgression, uh, then it affects the way they relate to their children. And with the children affected, it relates even to their children. And many of us have probably seen the situation where a grandparent affected, let's say, your parent, and then because of how they were treated and brought up, it has affected you. <clears throat> and if you haven't completely gotten over the traumas and the deficiencies and difficulties that are part of your heritage, then it will affect your children. So uh, breaking God's law isn't something you just do and walk blithely away. 
it has an effect, uh, effects that you don't even begin to perhaps realize unless you live long enough to see how those on down from you were affected. Anyway, God says then that he shows mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. This was being written to millions of people, actually, or said to millions of people. And he says God has mercy on the thousands. So even though there were many, many people there, and there are hundreds of millions in this nation alone among Israel, uh, only thousands have ever truly obeyed God. And even the Church of God at the end of the age, out of those all called, <laughs> never got over an outside number of 150,000. And many of them were not true and faithful and not truly converted uh, and the seed fell, you know, in stones and uh, rocks and bad dirt and various things, thorns. So now it's even smaller. So when it's all said and done, the whole history from mankind, from Adam and Eve, until Christ returns, out of the billions of people that have lived, only 144,000, so he's still speaking in thousands, will have obeyed sufficiently that God will include them in the first resurrection. So Moses wasn't, uh, or God wasn't, when he gave this directive, uh, just picking numbers. He knew how it would turn out. So all ages of people will only add up to 144,000. So he will show mercy on thousands. You shall not take the name of your, the eternal your God in vain, for the eternal will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. That could mean cursing and swearing. Uh, I think it has a, a bigger and broader uh, application in saying his name, giving him lip service, but not doing what he says. Uh, that is a vanity in itself, because it does not give us anything beyond this life. If we obey God uh, from the heart, then that equates to eternal life. But if we take his name in vanity or in uh, unrighteousness or, in, or lightly, let's say, then uh, that is truly taking it in vain because it will produce nothing for us beyond this life. That's just the end of it. I'm not going to take a lot of time expanding upon the Ten Commandments. We need to get as far as we can through the book of Deuteronomy. But uh, you know them. You know what they say. Just a few comments and we'll move on. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the eternal your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the eternal your God. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son, your daughter, your manservant, or your maidservant, or your ox, your ass, or any of the cattle, or the stranger that is within your gates, that you may, or that your manservant and your maidservant may rest as well as you. So employees, uh, you can't have working on the Sabbath. I think we all know those things. And remember that you are a servant in the land of Mitzrayim, and that the eternal your God has brought you out there of there 
through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the eternal God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And uh, not only the weekly Sabbath in that sense, but the day he brought them out was the Passover, which, that's another interesting thought. Uh, that was a Sabbath day, even though we didn't keep it that way for many, many years. But that was the day with the outstretched arm that he brought them out. Uh, and that is a Sabbath to, that is to be kept. Of course, he is talking in context here of the seventh day, but I wouldn't be surprised if he included that in that uh, he used the example of Egypt and when they came out of there. Well, what does the Sabbath represent? He's speaking in terms more of slavery, uh, that they were let out of bondage. And, of course, the Sabbath day pictures the millennium. Uh, Hebrews 4 makes that very clear. Uh, so the 7,000 years of man's experience will be the Sabbath in which we were delivered, given peace. The world will be delivered and given peace. So he's using this to picture what the Sabbath is all about. We, we take rest every seventh day, and it can't be the first day, the fourth day, or the sixth day. It has to be the seventh day because it's the 7,000-year period that is the millennium. So it's a good argument when people say, well, it doesn't matter just which, as long as it's one day. Uh, yes, it does matter. The type that God has attached to the Sabbath. Then he gets into the last six uh, to do more with the relationship of man to man, or all peoples, uh, as opposed to straight with God. Now, why is the Sabbath included in the first four? Uh, because that has directly to do with our relationship to God, not man. Now, we meet together on the Sabbath, yes. But it has to do with God's kingdom coming and being set up over the earth for all peoples. So the relationship with God on the seventh day is very, very important in, in explaining the meaning of the Sabbath and man's relationship to God. The others are more directly uh, human relationships. Of course, they all extend both ways. Uh, we, we can't rob God either, as Malachi points out. He expects us to fulfill our financial responsibilities and, and all of our other responsibilities to them. So all ten refer to God, and all ten refer to man, uh, one way or another. The first four are loaded more toward God, yes, and the last six more toward man. But they all go both directions, because who, what father do we honor more? Father in heaven above the father on earth. You honor both, but the first allegiance goes to your father in heaven. Honor your father and your mother as eternally God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged, and that it may be well with you in the land which the eternal gives you. So keep the relationship with God right. Also honor and respect your parents, because they will be teaching you the laws of God and the way of God. And you will have a longer life and a better life if you will honor, respect, obey, pay attention to your parents. If we think we know it all and we know better than them and we have a better way than they have, we will find out sooner or later, hopefully not too much later, 
that they knew what they were talking about. But we may suffer in the meantime, and our life might be shortened. You shall not kill or do murder. You shall not commit adultery. Neither shall you steal. Neither shall you bear false witness against your neighbor. Be careful what you say about your, about your neighbor, uh, that you don't uh, use or extend any falsehoods. Uh, it's really easy to repeat things that we may have heard, and we take them as gospel, and we don't know whether they're verifiable, whether they're true or not. It's so easy to take what someone says and say, well, that must be true. Well, it may not be true. Haven't we not all had things said about us that weren't true, or our motivation was not at all what people thought it was, or whatever? Uh, we've all experienced that, so we know. Neither shall you desire your neighbor's wife, neither shall you covet your neighbor's house, his field, or his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox or his ass, or anything that is your neighbor's. We're not to inordinately or illegally desire that which we cannot have. That doesn't mean if your neighbor has a, a nice bull or a horse or something that you like, and you can go to him and arrange a deal and pay him for it, or his car, whatever it might be, uh, that you can't do that. But it is, covetousness is an illegal lusting or desire for that could lead to thievery, that could lead to uh, trying to obtain something through nefarious means. Now that becomes wrong in motivation. Uh, but Noah's wife, I guess you can't go and make a deal and buy her. But some things you can and some things you can't, you see. <clears throat> Verse 22. These words the Eternal spoke to all your assembly in the mount out of the midst of the fire, of the cloud and of the thick darkness, with a great voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them in two tables of stone and delivered them to you. So the Ten Commandments were a complete law in and of itself. Any statutes and judgments that were rendered thereafter uh, were in addition to or explanation of further understanding so that we might apply the Ten Commandments better. But the law itself was complete and entire. You don't need any more than that. And Christ even broke it down in much simpler language than this. Love God, love your neighbor. Uh, put them first, put them ahead of yourself. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's just that simple and hard to do. That's all it amounts to. And it came to pass, when you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, uh, for the mountain did burn with fire, that you came near to me, even all the heads of your tribes and your elders. It should not surprise us in Zechariah 2, where he says that Jerusalem here in the end time will be surrounded by a wall of fire and a cloud as, as a covert from the heat. Uh, God's done that before. Uh, he did it for them at Sinai to protect them from seeing God and his glory and all falling over dead right there. <clears throat> he led them by a cloud and by fire through that 40 years. And he says that what he is going to do here in the end is going to make that look like child play by comparison. 
So to use some of those same methods uh, may sound to us, if we read it in Zechariah, too far-fetched. But what happened? That's the way he did it before. God works in patterns. So it shouldn't blow us away to think that that would happen again. Now, if you tell people that, who don't really understand the end times, they think you're nuts. What do you mean, a wall of fire around and a cloud over you? Well, duh. Have you ever read history? Here it is. And he said, Behold, the eternal our God has showed us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God does talk with man, and he lives. You can't look on God in his glory and live, but uh, if you're obscured by clouds and fire, uh, you can hear God's voice and live through it. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Eternal, our God, any more, then we shall die. What does he say? He's saying, God told you once. He gave you the laws. And if you hear his voice again, it will be as a punishment. In other words, you'll die. This, is, this was a one-time deal. Now, that doesn't mean once we're made spirit, we won't hear it, but he's speaking to a human congregation here and telling them that uh, God doesn't do this flippantly. He doesn't do it lightly. Uh, this is important to him. You better take it seriously, because if you hear him again, you know, it's like a parent. Son, don't do that. If you hear me from me again, you will die. Now, we don't intend to kill him, but... You will suffer. <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, some of us speak to our children three, four, five times, six times, ten times, try to get them to give their attention. No, just speak once and carry a big stick. Even Teddy Roosevelt understood that. He didn't even know God's law. Uh, let them suffer if they don't do. Your children should not argue with you. They should not have to be told three or four times to ignore you anyway. They should honor their parents and do what they're told. And you are failing your parental responsibility if you let them argue with you or do contrary to what you just told them. Make the penalties as severe as they need to be, whatever that might be. If they don't get it the first time, make it more severe. Why should you fight it? God doesn't fight it. Life should not be a zoo trying to get the monkeys to stay in the cage. They should do what we say. Sometimes you might have to be pretty severe to do it, but understand that child's life is in jeopardy. If he does not obey you and do what you say, and you have to speak again, and again, and again, and again, to get what you're desiring, that child's life may not be long on this earth. Understand that. Because honoring their parents is the first commandment with promise attached, physically speaking here. 
that your days may be long on the earth and it might go well with you. If you tend to rebel against or cast aside your parents, your life may not go too well and you may die very early. Very, very possible. So bear that in mind, parents and young people. Why should we die? Well, here again, we'll be in deep trouble. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and lived? How many? Now, did they take heed to everything Moses told them there in Exodus and not have problems? No, they did not. Now he's revealing it for them. And they had their history from the time of Sinai until here to understand that they had again started complaining and griping and being negative and talking against Moses and those that he had put in charge. And they were in trouble. They went into captivity. Their physical lives were not blessed and they were cut off short. So God doesn't just speak to hear his voice. Uh, verse 27, Go you near, and hear all that the Eternal our God shall say, and speak you unto us all that the Eternal our God shall speak to you, and we will hear it and do it. We don't want to hear him speak. We want you to go hear what he has to say, and then come tell us. You know, people don't like to do their own dirty work, or stomp their own snakes. They want somebody else to do it. So they were fearful, timid, scared, uh, Moses, you go take care of this for us. We, we don't want to handle this business. And the Eternal heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Eternal said to me, I have heard the words, the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have well said all that they have spoken. In other words, they have need to be afraid. Verse 29. Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. The O at the beginning of that is a shrug, it's a sigh, it's a plea. Oh, that they would. Oh, how I wish they would. They just given the commandments and they didn't follow through. That, that's a good memory verse there, Deuteronomy 5.29. Oh, that we had such a heart that we would obey God with all our heart and do what he says. That we would have long life. How long? Well, eternal. And that would go well with us. How long? Eternally. Peace, happiness, joy, no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. That's what he promises us if we will obey God with our heart. That is for you. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, verse 30. Go say to them, get you into your tents again. But as for you, stand you here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land which I give them to possess it. So he said, all right, I understand their attitude. I understand they don't want to deal directly with me. Tell them to go to their tents. But I'm going to tell you, and you've got to lay it on them, uh, what they are to do. 
not only the Ten Commandments, but the statutes and the judgments that go along to help explain uh, how they're to be kept. <laughs> I mean, does, do you really need for someone to tell you not to remove the marker on somebody's land so you have more land? I don't think you need to do that. If you love your neighbors yourself, you wouldn't be coveting and trying to go out at midnight and move the markers where his land is. But we have that as a statute, because lo and behold, somebody who claimed to love his neighbor loved his land more than he loved his neighbor, or whatever, and however it may come down. You shall observe to do, therefore, as the eternal your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Straight and narrow. We, we have to do it God's way. Uh, verse 33, You shall walk in all the ways which the eternal your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. And that worked pretty good for a time under Joshua, but at his death, they began to despise God. They didn't follow the leadership that uh, came after Joshua. And they went into sin and depravity, and God had sent them into captivity. So we know the past, and we also know the present. So we did not do what God just repeated through Moses, and God has scattered us and spewed us out of his mouth. And now we're hearing these words again, that we're to serve God with all our hearts, that we might enter into eternal life, and that life be well with us forever. So what we're reading here is only repeated in different language uh, along with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Nothing new in the New Testament, really. It's just a covenant that is uh, replete with greater promises and with help to obey from the Holy Spirit, which they did not have. So he gave us better opportunity through his Spirit in mind and he gave us greater promise and reward that we might have a bigger carrot in front of our nose, not just physical blessing in a physical land, but eternal blessing within the land. Chapter 6, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the eternal your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you go to possess it. God was careful to be organized and let them know where they were going, what to expect, and what the rules would be when they got there. Now, as a kind and loving parent, he told them what the boundaries are, and he told them the rules they would live by, and then if they did not do that, they would not have long life and blessing, but uh, they would have cursing, and we'll get to the blessings and cursings chapter eventually. Uh, and that's what the New Covenant is all about. Obey God in every way, and we will have life and life eternal and life in abundance. The reason he did this, verse 2, that you might fear the eternal your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you and your son and your son's son and all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. So it wasn't just to them, but this was to be passed. Peter, therefore, was well, and observed to it. 
that it may be well with you, and that you may increase mightily, as God of your fathers has promised you, in the land that flows with milk and honey. I find it incredible, brethren. This is it. We are in Zion today, uh, the center of the land of milk and honey, as it will be. And this is the place that God will protect us and feed us when the world is going through total devastation, decimation, until only less than one-tenth really are preserved. I was just kind of reflecting on some of those things as I was driving today that probably not a hundred people, or not many more than that on the face of the earth, understand what this place is, what this area is, and what's going Maybe a few more than that, uh, if two or three hundred in Africa have now come to understand, but not very many. And I don't think that there are any outside this group, unless they've learned it from us some way, who know what this is all about. Now, the Mormons, some of them, look upon this as an important place, but they by no means understand the ramifications of what it's all about. We are truly, truly blessed. Why? What are we? You know, we're nothing. We're not all that smart, not all that intelligent, not all that capable. We're just run-of-the-mill people. And yet God has given us this, that by his strength and by his glory, he might use us to show who he is. So we have a very, very great calling here. Let's not minimize it. Let's not take it lightly. Let's not overlook it. But always remember why God has brought us here. It's not just to save our scrubby hides. It's to set an example and to be a light and a witness to the rest of the church and to the world that God is God. Not that we're important, but that He is important. So He always starts things very small, and then they grow. And He started very small here, giving us this knowledge and this understanding, not because we're important, but because He thought He could use the weak and the base to confound the wise. That's why we're here, not because we're mighty and noble and important and bright, but that we are the weak in the base, and that we can use the weak in the base to show the world who he is, then it's greater glory to God. I, I think we can understand that. You know, we, we've expressed that sometimes. If God can use me, if God can use us, then he must be something else. <laughs> you know, that's what you have to conclude. Here, verse 4, O Israel, the eternal our God is one eternal, and you shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So he says that right after he gives the Ten Commandments, and Christ quoted that almost word for word. Uh, that's what we're to do in the New Testament, the New Covenant. It, it isn't really new. We were to love God with all our heart, Back then, and Jeremiah said the same thing, that was still in the Old Testament. It's just that the people could not live up to the law of God 
without his Holy Spirit. There wasn't anything wrong with the covenant. The fault was found with the people, as Paul explains in Hebrews. So God gave us his Spirit and within the new covenant that we might call on that to have the strength and the power to grow and to overcome and to be like God is. Because he's already proved over thousands of years that without his help, without his spirit, it can't be done. It is an impossibility. But with God, all things are possible, right? We read that just recently. And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. Not something we think about once in a while, but there to be the very motivation of our heart and mind, of our emotions, is to try to live up to these commandments. And teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk with them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, sometimes we can't think of anything to talk about. Well, maybe we could talk about God. Maybe we could talk about his ways and his laws sometimes. But we run into problems, it seems, if you do start trying to talk about the sermon or the principles or something we learned or whatever, then people think we're being over-righteous or self-righteous or why don't we talk about our garden, you know, or, or whatever, our job or something else. Uh, well, God says we need to make these things a part of our conversations, especially with our families and when we do fellowship together. We need to put them on a spiritual basis perhaps more often than we do. And if we appear self-righteous in so doing, well, then that's just too bad. Maybe somebody else needs to get on. You shouldn't come off this page to get on their page. If they're on another page, then they need to come off their page and get on God's page. So we all need to get on his page. Uh, more than we are, I think, than we do. Not that it's wrong and our needs and our interests and commonalities and so on. There's, there's that part of fellowship, too. But always in the back of our mind, if not the front, we need to be considering what we're saying, what we're talking about, and whether it is godly, it's uplifting, it's helpful, or whether it's sliding downhill. And I know a lot of times we found ourselves in conversation with potluck, and it'll start out here, and then we'll talk a little more, and we'll talk a little more, and first thing you know, the conversation went over the ledge somewhere. Uh, and then it's time to maybe stop it and upgrade it or, <laughs> or whatever, move on. But God is just saying, these things need to be His ways in the forefront of our minds. Verse 8, and you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the posts of your house and on your gates. In other words, be in constant reminder wherever. Whether you're walking down the street, whatever you're doing with your hands, uh, whether you're going in and out of your house, the law of God, His way, needs to be 
predominant in our minds. If you're going to control every thought and bring it into the captivity of Christ, then that is a 24-7 job. We have to be aware at all times of our responses, of our emotions, of our uh, attitude toward other people. There is no room for negativity. There's no room for knocking people down. There's no room for talking about their problems, true or alleged. There's no room for that in God's way. It just isn't. And if we allow ourselves to imbibe in those things and descend to that level, then we have left God's level and we are on the level of Satan, the devil. He is the one who has negativity. He is the one who is downpulling. And if you think that we can get away with doing those things and still claim to be servants of God, you got another thing coming. We have to get above and beyond and away from all that kind of thing and love our neighbor as ourselves. There is not one person here who likes to hear anything negative about himself or any gossip about himself or put down of himself. Not one of us. But we all find it so easy to do it to someone else. That means that we are not keeping the law of God. We are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And if we kid ourselves and deceive ourselves that we are, uh, we are deceived. And we are kidding ourselves. And we are deceitful and desperately wicked. That's just the way it is. Verse 10, and it shall be, when the eternal your God shall have brought you into the land which he swore to the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you great and goodly cities which you built not, and homes full of all good things which you filled not, and wells digged which you dig not, vineyards and olive trees which you planted not, when you shall have eaten and be full. Now let's understand, too, that uh, Isaiah 15 indicates that uh, those people who are inhabiting the land, when God's people come into the promised land of the end time, have their storage, their things that they have filled their houses and their warehouses and barns with, are going to be for God's people. It's talking about the Ammonites and Moabites there in specific. And it's talking about the time when God has told those people to be a protection for God's people there in Isaiah 16. So uh, they were about to go in, and the tribes and the nations that were living there had already built the cities, had the storage, had the fruit trees and the land planted, and they were to receive that. And you know what? We're to have the same thing. Same thing. He says, much people and much cattle. Where are those cattle going to come from? Is God just going to suddenly create them out of nothing? No, they're already here. It's just that those people are going to go into captivity and that stuff will left be, be left behind for God's people. That's what it's going to be. God repeats these things over and over. So when you shall have eaten and be full, beware. Now, there's several cutoffs, you know, 
God is going to make a cut when he stirs the righteous or those who are being faithful to come and build the temple. Then he says there will be another cut when the abomination is set up in the temple and it's time to flee to the place of safety where you're sitting today. So just being part of the gathering does not ensure anything. Because there will be some who are not accounted worthy. So beware when God begins to bless us and begins to give us all these things that he has promised here in the end time that we don't take it for granted because we might miss that cut to the place of safety and be left behind uh, and be killed. Matthew 24 makes that a distinct possibility. And then there's another cut when Christ returns. One in the field, or two in the field, one taken and one not. Two in the bed, one taken and one not. That's speaking of the resurrection there, not the flight to safety. So we've got basically three cuts ahead of us. Just being gathered, going to safety, and going into the kingdom of God. Well, there's no time to let up. Sorry. <laughs> there's not any time to let up. But here's this warning. When you shall have eaten and be full, then beware, lest you forget the eternal which brought you out forth out of the land of Nisrium from the house of bondage. We were brought into God's truth and out of the bondage of this world to understand liberty and the pursuit of happiness in moving toward God's kingdom. How did the pursuit of liberty and happiness work out in America? That kind of worked for a while, but now it's really headed downhill steeply. And that didn't work out too well. Uh, you young people sitting here do not have a future in the United States of America as a nation. It's on its way out, and it will be gone very shortly now. Uh, we are so many trillions of dollars in debt and so depraved morally and spiritually and in every way that we cannot survive God's indignation. Nor, if God just sat back and did nothing, we are not capable at this time of surviving the ire, the anger of the rest of the nations of the world. We are like the crumbling Roman Empire, and it doesn't have far to go until it crumbles into the dust. So if you think that you can uh, run out there in the world and build a life and live the American dream, uh, you got another thing coming. The American dream is vanishing. It's almost gone. Uh, working in a fast food joint five days, I mean five hours a day, four days a week, will not give you the American dream that your grandparents had. It ain't going to happen. It's almost gone. So, serve God. Make up your mind. Commit yourself to God's way. Your parents are promised that if you are obedient children, honorable children, that he will protect you because of your parents' obedience. If you are not, you're going to be left behind and you are going to suffer along with everybody else. So give that some very, very serious thought as you go about life proud of your mentality, proud of your physique, proud of your muscles, proud of your age, proud of your, whatever it is you're proud of. And God says that we have those things. But 
The pride of America, the pride of state, is diminishing and disappearing. And there's nothing going to be left to be proud of in America within five, ten years. And I think I'm being probably generous with that, but I don't want to try to set dates. But the, the crash of our economy and the utter uselessness of the dollar is almost upon us. So don't forget God. Verse 13, you shall fear the eternal your God and serve him and shall swear by his name, not by anything else. You shall not go after other gods with the gods of the people which are round about you. And these people around us do have all kinds of gods, things that they put ahead of the eternal God. For the eternal your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the eternal your God that be kindled against you and destroy you from off the face of the earth. So this is a command with promise of Messiah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Eternal, your God, and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. I'm not having too much trouble understanding why he wants this read every seven years. Uh, every seven years you have the cycle of man's existence from Adam through the millennium. Seven days a week with the Sabbath, the seventh, and the seven years with the year of release, and then seven of those, and you have the year of jubilee, of utter and total release and everlasting freedom that God has promised through Pentecost and, and in the New Testament. So he has us review at the end of every seven-year cycle God's law, his ways, uh, so that we don't forget them and that we reaffirm and recommit ourselves every seventh Feast of Tabernacles, I will live God's way. And we can do it in these seven-year increments. At the end of seven years, you can kind of check yourself to see how you did the last seven. Um, don't be discouraged. We're just starting. So you've got all of it ahead of you to work at having a better report after another seven years is done. And we do it weekly. We assess the last six days, how we served, how we obeyed God, what we need to do next week to do a better job. So he gives us the, the weekly cycle. Seven years is too long for us. We, we can't keep focus that long. Seven days is almost too much. Six days of man doing what man does and, brother, we need a Sabbath. We need to get close to God. We need to use that time to reassess and prepare for the week that is about to start when the Sabbath ends. So he gives us that short-term reminder, and then he gives us this long-term reminder to go through the whole law. We can't do that every Sabbath, uh, but we can do it at the feast. And I'm going to be pushed. I doubt I'll make it all the way through. Uh, we can continue and finish it, but uh, remember there in Nehemiah, they read from in the morning until midday. So they probably put in a good four hours every day, eight days, that's 32. So a chapter a day, I mean a chapter an hour for those eight days, four hours a day would get you through the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, me getting through one or two or three or four a day, and then I don't speak every day, isn't going to get it done. 
if you do any expounding at all. Uh, I mean, yeah, I could probably read this. I can read fairly rapidly, and we could zip through it. But would we get what we need out of it? See, uh, we need to take enough time to analyze and expound and apply it to ourselves so that we make the sense of it as Ezra and Nehemiah did. Let's see how... Where was I here? Diligently keep the commandments, statutes, verse 17. And you shall do that which is right and good in the sight of the eternal, that it may be well with you, and go in and possess the good land which the eternal swore to your fathers. He repeats that over and over. To cast out all your enemies from before you as the eternal has spoken. He's promised that in Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the end time prophecies as well. Obey God, and he will cast your enemies out, and he will protect you. And when your son asks you in time to come, say, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the eternal our God has commanded you? They won't have been there. Uh, well, what do these things mean? Then you shall say to them, your son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Mitzrium, and the Eternal brought us out of Mitzrium with a mighty hand. And the Eternal showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Mitzrium, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in, in to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. And the Eternal commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Eternal our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Eternal our God as he has commanded us. So that's what we're to pass along to our children. And that was passed along. You know, David spoke of uh, coming out of Mitzrayim over and over in the Psalms. And it's repeated really throughout the prophecies many times, and even in the New Testament it's mentioned several times, uh, that that was a landmark that we are to go back to and how great and powerful our God is. Uh, constant reminder. And then Jeremiah tells us it's going to be even greater here at the end. So we have a lot on the line. We have a lot of opportunity ahead of us. Let's not get discouraged or negative or frustrated or uh, begin to doubt. These promises are here, and if they aren't fulfilled, God is not God. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We've read these promises over and over. They're in there. Uh, the timing is God's. But don't ever think that what he's shown us in these scriptures doesn't apply. the only thing, the way we're understanding it is the only thing that makes any sense and you can't go anywhere in the church of God and find the understanding of the end times that God has shown us here I can't, you can't they just don't understand what has happened to the church, precisely why it has happened and what God is going to do about it I, does anybody know, I ask again does anybody know where you can go and find out about the gathering, building the temple, building Jerusalem, the work that the two witnesses will do and the type of work it will be and how they will go about it and how they will restore the church and how God is going to build something that is even greater than what was there under Herbert Armstrong. Where would you go? 
Is there a clue? Is there anybody that even begins to understand? There's not. You can't find it. It's not out there. Now that doesn't make me great. It doesn't make you great. Because we understand. It means God is great. And he has shown a few what he is going to do. And told us to prepare a place and be ready when he brings the rest. That God may be all in all and that the church and the world can understand who God is. Not understand who you and I are. It doesn't matter. But who God is. We need to truly fear before God when we take that into account of what he has taught us. Yeah, we have problems. Yeah, we have wants and needs and desires. We have blessings we would like to have. We have difficulties and health issues and all kinds of things that we would like to have healed. And it's coming in God's time. He's promised the end-time church these things will happen. Now, if somebody understands it better somewhere and God has shown them a better place, we better find it. But if he showed it to us here, we better fear before God to fail at what he has called us to do. We better take it seriously. Because he hasn't shown it to anyone else. Now, if we fail, he won't fail. He'll raise up stones. He's already told us that. So he's already called a bunch of blockheads. Uh, don't make him raise up literal stones. Because he can do it. We need to take advantage of the opportunity that God has given us. Chapter 7. I don't. I left my watch either in the... Let's see. Yeah. Well, we got started a little late, too. Let's see if we can whip through seven right quick. You don't have anything to do but go out and look at the most, one of the most beautiful places on earth, which this is. But we need to make some time, too. This is a good chapter seven. I'll try not to take too much time, but get on with it. When the eternal your God shall bring you into the land where you go to possess it, and he's brought us partly there, hasn't he? Here we sit today. Not possessing it yet, but we at least get to visit it, we get to be part of it, and we're right in the neighborhood. And it's cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. Uh, those are all tribes of Ham, uh, black people who were in the area at the time. And they were greater and mightier than Israel was. Israel had several million people. So how many millions of them were there? And how great was the promised land? How great was it? Archaeologists tell us that there's been no climate change in the Middle East back as far as they can comprehend. That it's always been that way. Desert will not support people. So there were several million people, Israelites, that had to be supported, and probably more of those tribes that were already there being supported by that land. That land couldn't do it, then or now. This 
has in the past, is now, and will again. Now, at that point, it probably wasn't limited only to that area which Ezekiel's temple comprises, but God had told them when they went into their, the promised land that he would later expand their borders. He mentioned that two or three times. In other words, I'm giving you this much, but later it will get bigger. And it encompasses from sea to shining sea and Canada down today. And when the eternal your God shall deliver them before you, you shall smite them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Of course, when they got down to it and went in with Joshua, they did not follow through with what God instructed them right here. Neither shall you make marriages with them. Your daughter shall not give unto his son, nor his daughter shall take unto your son. For they will turn away your son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Eternal be kindled against you and destroy you suddenly. So they went in, they intermarried, they began to follow the gods of those peoples, and they went into captivity and died because they disobeyed God. Now there's a lot to be said, and I don't have time to do it here, about uh, race and intermarriage and why God forbade it at one point and might not at other points. Uh, which he allowed a great deal of it in the Bible. And we can maybe get into that more at some point to understand that uh, by no means is one race, whatever it might be, lesser than another. Uh, but this was because God was pulling Israel out of idolatry, did not want them to go back into it, and if they mixed with those peoples around them, they would go back into idolatry. Just as we come into the church today and out of the idolatry around us, and then we dip our toes and our hands back into the world. And it pulls us back. That's why he tells us not to make friends out in the world, not to fellowship with them, not to have them as golfing buddies, drinking buddies, whatever buddies we might want to do. God tells us, do not do that. Now, he did not forbid, throughout the Bible, intermarriage of races. But there is a spiritual race, a people that God has called, neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew. It doesn't matter whether we're male or female, and we still can see the difference, can we not? Even in our society, you can still tell most of the time. Male from female, and different races from other races. But God says in Him, we are none of those. We are a spiritual race, spiritual Jews. Whether we are male, or whether we are female, or whether we are of one race or another race, we are one and the same. So when Paul tells us then not to marry outside the church, the spiritual race, they, he means it. I've seen many people marry outside the truth. And yet have I to see it work well even once. Some of them get along fairly well, but there will always be an impedance to you obeying God if you're married to someone who is an unbeliever. 
So God makes the same delineation in the New Testament between a spiritual Israelite and even another physical Israelite that is not of the truth. You're not to marry them. not to date them. You're not to go there. We're not to have fellowship with the world. Not our children. Not us. Not our grandparents. We are to be separate. To come out of her, my people. And if we start making friends with the world, first thing you know, our children will be marrying out in the world and they will depart from God and follow idolatry and be destroyed. So you can't let them do it when they're little because it'll only get worse when they get bigger. And that's where they'll end up. You've got to cut it off completely. That's what he tells us to do. We cannot make friends of the world because we will become the enemies of God. How clearly can he put it? That's, that's all he's saying here. Is you're not to interact with those peoples and intermarry with them because they will pull you from God. Now that makes it different with race within the church, see? We're in the church and you would be better off by far marrying someone of a different race in the church than you would be to marry someone out in the world, even if they were of the same race. Follow me? Now, a lot of Americans have a lot of animosity and feelings about interracial marriage. But that's what they learn from parents and grandparents. It's not what God teaches He tells us, with, in no uncertain terms, don't marry outside the faith. But he does not make it that clear in the New Testament about race. Now let's get down to the nitty-gritty of this. Even in the church 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you or other people didn't get too excited when someone with apparent Israelite blood married a German. Did you? They're Semitic, at least. May not be Israelites, but they didn't. You didn't think about Germans marrying Israelites. And for the most part, if uh, someone who was apparently a bit of uh, Israelite blood married an Italian, Italians were okay. That was all right. Mexicans were all right to a degree. Maybe not quite as much as Italians. Let's say. Uh, the boy came down to black and white. Ooh, ooh, the lid came off. It was okay as long as it wasn't black and white. But God says that he does not make discrimination. He calls male, he calls female, he calls Greeks, and he calls Jews. And they're all part of the spiritual tribe of Judah, the church. Now, there may be some other issues about this, and I said I wouldn't go into it too deeply, and here we dive in, but uh, we need to be careful uh, with our thoughts and our prejudices sometimes that are there, not from God, but from our upbringing in an ungodly world. But he makes it very clear here that the real reason for not allowing intermarriage was pulling us away from God. David intermarried, Moses intermarried, Abraham intermarried. All the fathers, basically, intermarried into other races. 
but they serve God, you see. And uh, that's the key. So you can't marry in the world. Uh, they'll pull you from God. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the eternal your God. The eternal God has chosen you to be a particular or redeemed people. 1 Peter 2, 3. To himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. So he says the same thing of the church that he said here of physical Israel. We're a special, a redeemed, a different people. Therefore we can't mix with the world. Uh, we're not taking over the land right now, but if we were, we would be tearing down everything evil that is out there. There wouldn't be a steeple left on a church. There wouldn't be uh, a cross left in a cemetery. On and on it goes. We would tear down all the symbols of sun worship and uh, Washington, D.C. basically just need to be leveled and gone because it's pagan all the way through. Street layout, buildings, everything. And the people who dwell there. Verse 7, The Eternal did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people for you were the fewest of all people. They were smaller even though there were a few million of them. But because the Eternal loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to your fathers, has the Eternal brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Mitzrayim. Know therefore that the Eternal your God, he is God, the faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, as long as it may go, God is going to be faithful to those who serve him. And repays them that hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hates him. He will repay him to his face. And that's what God is commencing to do. They have some flesh-eating bacteria out there now that the CDC is beginning to talk about that will curl your hair. What we have experienced with George just recently is treatable pretty much with antibiotics to this point. But they have some, some out there now that are killing people in hospitals across this country that will make that one look like child play. And they have no defense, no antibiotic, no way to control it. Are the diseases of Egypt about to be visited upon us to our face? That's just one thing. Verse 12, Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the eternal your God shall keep you, or keep unto you, the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you, and bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your land, your corn, and your wine, and your oil, the increase of your cattle, and the flocks of your sheep, in the land which he swore unto your fathers to give you. And he tells us, even in Zechariah 2, before the millennium, much people, much cattle. So even before Christ returns, God is going to have a small group of people that he is going to bless 
in a way that can be used as a witness to the world that here's what happens when God is there and here's what happens to you when he's not there. God has great purpose in what he's doing and beginning with you and me and will increase. You shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. No miscarriages with people or with our animals. And the Eternal will take away from you all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt uh, which you know upon you, but will lay them upon all them that hate you. God has said he'll make a separation even now between us and the world out there around us. Israel went through the first few plagues of Egypt and then God made a difference. Didn't let any more of it come on them. We've seen some of it upon us, and we may see it for a little longer, and then God says, I'm going to make a separation. It's going to stop. You're not going to have the things that this world is about to suffer. And you shall consume all the people which the eternal your God shall deliver you. Your eyes shall have no pity upon them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. If you shall say in your heart, these nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? They're greater, they're more important. How can we do what God said to do to them? Then you shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the eternal your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. That's why he tells us in Isaiah, it was an end time prophecy, don't fear this conspiracy, this confederacy that's coming. Fear me, and I will bless you. Fear and obey God. And he will see us through what is getting more and more prominent in the news of the downfall of this nation and the new world order coming in. Our ticket to peace and safety is fear of God and obedience to him. That's how we will be protected and provided for. If you, uh, let's see, verse 18, you shall not be afraid of them, but shall well remember what God did when he brought you out of Israel. The great temptations which your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the stretched out arm, whereby the eternal your God brought you out, so shall the eternal your God do to all the people of them of whom you are afraid. He's going to do it again, just like he did in Israel. And... Don't be afraid of them, because they're going to get it in the neck. Be afraid of God, who can spare you. Moreover, the eternal your God will send the hornet among them, till they that are left and hide themselves from you be destroyed. You shall not be affrighted at them, for the eternal your God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. And the eternal your God will put out those nations before you by little and little, you may not consume them at once, lest the beasts of the field increase upon you. So having all those millions of people there were keeping uh, the wild animals and beasts that could care them uh, in check. And he said, if I remove them all immediately, they're going to increase and they'll be a hazard to you. But they'll be removed little by little till they're all gone, if you'll obey me. <laughs> But the eternal your God shall deliver them to you and shall destroy them with a mighty destruction until they be destroyed. And he shall deliver their kings into your hand and you shall destroy their name from under heaven. There shall no man be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. The graven images of their God shall you burn with fire. You shall not desire the silver or gold that is on them nor take it to you lest you be snared therein. For it is an abomination to the eternal your God.
Neither shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be a cursed thing like it. And you shall utterly detest it, and shall utterly abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. That tells you right there, stay away from this world around us. Don't get involved in it, and the things that it's doing, and the things that it's thinking. Because it will pull you away from God, and you'll be cursed and destroyed just like they are. There's an awful lot of really pertinent stuff here for us, but that's we're out of time for sure. Let's stop there.